If you've joined us since the beginning of our worship service this morning, just want to once again extend a warm welcome to all of you. Glad to be with you in the presence of the Lord on this beautiful Sunday morning in early November. It's good to hear the praises of God's people sung. There's nothing like hearing the voice of God's people lifting up praises to his name and having the truth sung into our hearts, not just spoken. And that's one of the beauties of congregational singing, to remind us of the promises of God's word. And I think in some special ways that singing gets into our hearts even differently than any other words. And if you uh, think about those days and times when you're depressed or discouraged and need to be reminded, it sometimes is scriptures that come to your mind, that's good. I hope you're lodging away scriptures and memory in your own heart. But isn't it often the lines from famous hymns that pop into your mind and encourage you and strengthen you and rehearse for you um, the truth of who God is and what he's done? Maybe a time where that's especially true is when we gather around the deathbed of a loved one. I was speaking to a member in our congregation just this week who recently said uh, goodbye to her mother, or at least farewell for a period of time. As she, this morning, as we gather here in the presence of the Lord, she gathers in the presence of the Lord and worships him. And it was very, in a very real sense, those lines from some familiar hymns that uh, stuck in her own heart and mind, rem remembering who Christ is and what he has promised. And even in the midst of grief and loss, being able to say, I trust, my trust is found in him. It's something about deathbed experiences that help us take um, the truths of scripture to heart. And where we find ourselves this morning in Genesis 48 is in a deathbed experience. We have Jacob at the very end of his life saying the very final words that his loved ones will hear from his lips here in chapter 48 and 49. And like most of us in those moments, if you've been in those moments, uh, your, your ears are, are peaked and your attention is wrapped, you want to hear what are the final things that the one who loves you, you've known all your life, wants to say to you before they depart and are here no more. And we got those words recorded for us out of Jacob's lips here in Genesis 48 and 49. And so I just want to encourage you as we approach this text together, uh, saddle up next to Jacob's bed as he's maybe uh, laboring and breathing. As we're told, he has a very difficult time summoning his strength to even sit up in the bed. And as he's going to choke out what seems to be final words to the grandchildren and to his precious son, Joseph, are words that the Lord saw fit to be spoken not just to Joseph and to his grandkids, but to you, sons and daughters of Jacob through the generations. His great, 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 and many more greats grandchildren, because that's what we are. This is a family gathering, and we're looking to one of our patriarchs of old. Let's listen closely as the Lord speaks in and through him. Genesis 48, beginning in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. 
And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples. And I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel, I died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites, with my sword and with my bow. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice over these final words coming out of the mouth of Jacob, words that extend from this chapter into the next, as we'll consider even next week together, but words that have continued to speak 
though Joseph, his grandsons, Jacob, and this generation of which we are considering have long passed, their ministry and witness is still very present. And in today, in the hearing of your people, remembering this story, we are taking into heart by faith the fact that the truths which you have spoken long ago do not change with time. They do not expire, but they are as true today as they have ever been. And we need to hear this blessing from the lips of Jacob, a blessing that wasn't merely for Ephraim and Manasseh, a blessing that is indeed even for us is great, 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 and many more great grandchildren here in this room. Come and meet with us in this word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a joy this week to catch up with a friend of mine who was introducing me to another friend of his who I had never met before. And as we were talking together and uh, sharing a few stories and connecting dots between a variety of relationships and experiences that the three of us had shared together, the, the young man who I'd just met for the first time had to leave. And there I stood with my good friend. And he said, I just really enjoy that guy. Speaking of the one who had just left. Because he's the kind of guy that you can clearly say, honestly, what you see is what you get. What you see is what you get with him. He's not going to pull punches with you. He doesn't have a hidden agenda. He's a what you see is what you get kind of guy. Now, I've thought a little bit about that phrase this week. It's a phrase that I'm actually quite accustomed to using, and probably many of you in this room have either heard or said that phrase, maybe with reference to others or with reference to certain experiences in life, but what you see is what you get. But of course, that begs a question. <laughs> what do you see? What do you see? If what you see is what you get, the question is, what do you, what do you see? And when we begin to ask the question, what do you see, it's not always clear, and it's certainly not always true that everybody sees the same thing. That truism is particularly true here in Genesis 48, with the story of Jacob coming to a close. It reminds us of the fact that not everybody sees life, sees the world, sees the story of the world the same way. Not everybody interprets it through the same lens. It doesn't register in the heart of all people alike in the same way. But it is true that what you see is what you get. But what do you see? What does this passage call us to see? Maybe even more specifically, what does, what does Jacob see? You, you might say to yourself, he doesn't see much. <laughs> the, the text makes it pretty clear, right? That this man is old and he has grown old with age. And, and in fact, if, because some of you are biblical scholars, as soon as I began reading this, you thought, this reminds me of something. This text, this blessing scene, it's like I'm having a deja vu moment with the scriptures as we're moving through Genesis 48. And you were, you were having a deja vu moment. You're not going crazy. You're, you're remembering Genesis 27. 
You're remembering when Jacob wasn't old but young, and he went to a really old Isaac to get a blessing. And that really old Isaac, do you remember? He was blind. He couldn't see. And because he couldn't see, it was Jacob who wind up exploiting his father Isaac and deceived his father Isaac in the thinking that he was Esau, the, the older one, the, the firstborn, the one who was to receive the blessing. You're remembering that. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're in Genesis 27, except we're in Genesis 48. And Jacob is not young, but he is old. And he has two sons, or two grandsons, and a son by a side who can see perfectly fine. But his eyes have grown quite dim. But here's what's fascinating about this text, and part of what God wants us to see today, is that though Jacob has lost his eyesight, it hasn't affected his ability to see. Though Jacob has lost his eyesight, it hasn't affected his ability to see. In fact, arguably in this text, he's the only one that sees things really clearly. He is, we might say, the blind man who sees everything. Jacob summons up his strength. He sits up in his bed. He greets Joseph and his two sons, and he takes a little trip down memory lane because this is the last time that he's going to get a chance to tell his grandsons and his son Joseph, who's been away from him for several decades, to tell them about when God met him. And it's understandable, isn't it, that he would go back to his own blessing. To, to remember, as he's preparing to bless, he'd go back to his own blessing. And he would remember one of the lowest points of his life that turned into one of the highest points of his life. The, the low point of deceiving his father, of receiving the blessing, and then having Esau, his older brother, see red and want to kill him. And he has to leave his homeland, has to leave his family, and he's traveling miles away from home, and he's in the middle of nowhere. And you remember what happens? He lays his head on a rock, and the heavens open up. And a stairway from heaven appears and angels are ascending and descending the staircase and God speaks to him and God blesses him and he blesses him with the blessing that he's about to extend in this passage to the next generation. He blesses him telling him that I'm going to make you fruitful, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to give to your offspring the everlasting portion of the land of Canaan. That's the language of verse 3 in the text. Though he can't see, his son Joseph and his grandkids Manasseh and Ephraim in the passage, what does he see? He sees the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises. He sees, we might say, not just the reality of the presence of people. He sees the fulfillment of God's covenant promises beginning to come true. He sees not with the eyes that are in the head, he sees with the eyes of faith that come from the heart. He sees into the meaning of things. What a mentor used to call, call the truth of things. It's one thing to just see what is there. It's another thing to see the truth of what is there. Fathers and mothers, grandmothers and grandfathers in this room, what, what do you see when you see your children? 
What do you see if the Lord has given you grandchildren? Well, what do you, what do you see? Do you, do you see, well, another mouth to feed? Do you see another, another college fund? Um, do you see another project? Do, do you see something that needs to be fixed? Um, do you see a blessing from God? Do you see a fulfillment of God's kindness? Do you see the generational unfolding of his covenant promises being faithful in and through you? What, what do you see? You might see and not see. You, you might, as it were, take in the reality of what's before you, but not take in the meaning of what's there. Psalm 127 verses 3 and 5 says, Behold, children are, doesn't say can be, could be, under the best circumstances, Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're the fruit of the womb. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is filled with them. Now listen, it doesn't always feel that way. I'm not talking about the experience of child raising here. The fact of the matter is, let's just look at this passage. I won't talk about your family or mine for a second. Let's just look at this passage. Was Jacob always a real joy to raise as a son? What about Jacob's sons? I bet they were a gift all the time. Especially when they sold their brother into slavery and deceived their father for multiple decades that he was dead. If you just get into the, the nuts and bolts of the passage, it's quite clear. We're not talking about the experience of raising children. We're talking about believing the scripture above our felt experience. That God in the midst of all of that mess is actually bringing forth a tremendous fulfillment. That, as he promises in the word, that which he has begun, he'll bring to completion. And as Jacob is preparing to bless his grandchildren and with Joseph there in the midst, he's seeing through the promises of God. He's focused upon the fulfillment of what God is doing. He's looking to the truth of the word rather than the felt experience of the moment. And he's cutting through what is often worldly focus. He's looking at eternal matters as he extends that blessing. Now, why do I say that? Well, not only do we see his sight of faith in this passage, but we actually see where that sight of faith drives him. And you know where it drives him? To pay attention to the promised seed. To pay attention to the promised seed. You probably noticed this, but the whole of the passage is really focused, isn't it, on the promised seed, the promised seed of Joseph. Now, we don't actually see the word seed translated in that way in Genesis 48, but it's all over the passage. For instance, there in verse 4, when he says he rehearses the blessings and the promises of God, and he says that his offspring will have an everlasting possession, and he goes on to describe um, seeing his offspring, Joseph, which he never expected to see again, and seeing his Joseph's offspring, which is his grandkids, and he's astonished at seeing it. That word offspring is the word seed. It's the same word that goes back to the, his own father, Isaac, who was always looking for that seed. 
goes back to his grandfather Abraham who was always looking for that seed. He's focused upon the promised seed. The whole text is about this blessing extended down to the promised seed. That's the storyline because why? Well, that's the storyline of the whole book. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? When we first see the seed mentioned in the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman that's going to come one day and crush the seed of the serpent, that's going to bring redemption to mankind, that salvation and hope for salvation is alive through the promises of God's word as he first gave the telling of the gospel there in Genesis 3.15, that he's not going to leave Adam and Eve to die and for the hopelessness of the human race to unfold, but he's going to rescue them. He's going to bring a seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. You see, this focus on the seed is actually why some of the strange things happen as they do in this passage. I don't know if, it, if you read it this way, but if you're looking at verse 5 as you're reading along and he says to Joseph, listen, um, so your sons are here. This is amazing. Yeah, they're mine, not yours. You go, I didn't expect to hear that. And, and you, you sort of might think to yourself, well, that's okay. That's probably just a, a kind sort of grandfatherly way to say it. No, that's not what he means. He, he literally means they're his. In fact, biblical scholars, as they look at this passage, uh, see very clearly that what's actually taking place is an adoption ceremony. The grandkids of Joseph are actually going to receive the inheritance of Jacob as firstborn children. He's bringing them, as it were, into his own family. He says, as Reuben and Simeon are to me, these two, Ephraim and Manasseh, will be to me. Now, who is Reuben and Simeon? Well, those are his firstborn sons of Leah. He's saying, they are my firstborn sons, but what's going to actually happen is Ephraim and Manasseh are going to receive the firstborn privilege from me instead of Reuben and Simeon. I'm extending it in and through the line of Joseph. This line, the promised seed, is going to go through Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, you might think to yourself, why, why, is, he not doing, why is he not extending this to Reuben and Simeon? I mean, they're really getting the short end of the stick here uh, when it comes to the divvying out of the inheritance and the blessing that's there. Well, to you know, kind of foreshadow coming attractions, if you look at Genesis 49, he's going to talk about all of his other sons. And in the opening of Genesis 49, he's going to tell you why Reuben and Simeon have been passed over for the firstborn blessing. Reuben, because he defiled his father's couch and slept with his concubine Bilhah. And Simeon, because of his violence in taking Shechem with Levi and destroyed the city in their wickedness, trying to revenge their sister Dinah's rape, because of their wickedness, they are passed over for the firstborn. And it's extending now not to the firstborn sons of Leah, but who? The firstborn son of Rachel, his other wife, Joseph. But not Joseph specifically. Isn't that curious? His grandkids. Why? Well, you can kind of see a note of it here, can't you? When, when he says there in verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt. Who are, who are these sons? Well, they're not technically 
sons of the promise, as it were. Who is their mother? Well, you just go back in the, you know, kind of Rolodex of your mind here. <laughs> go, go through the search engine of your mind. Oh, yeah, this is Asenath, the, uh, the daughter of Potipharia, the priest of On. These, these sons have come from the, uh, the, the, the loins, as it were, of Egypt. They've come from the seed of Egypt. <laughs> They've come from pagan background. Yes, Joseph, as the head of his family, the, the one in whom the promises of God has been extended, but his sons haven't come from the line of Rachel, haven't come from the line of, of, of Leah in that sense. They are sons of Egypt. They're more, we might say, they're way more Egypt than Hebrew. But in the midst of this moment, as, as Jacob is taking in, as it were, his grandkids who have been enculturated in Egypt, he is now taking them to be his own. And they are becoming, they are going to be the promised seed who will be extending down into the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, you know what we hear over the rest of the history of the Old Testament? That Ephraim and Manasseh become the half-tribes that make up a whole tribe as a part of the people of Israel. They have an inheritance in the land. They're treated just like all of the other sons of Jacob. The extension of the promise happens in and through these grandchildren. And in a very real sense, we're seeing those who were born of a Gentile lineage, of a mixed blood, are those who are being brought into the midst of the family of God's promises. Now, hopefully you can catch a whiff of something there. You Gentiles. You, you non-Jewish types in here. You Egyptian-born you, you daughters and sons of Asenath, the daughter of Potipharia, the priest of On. You, you pagans, as it were. You, you, the promised seed extended even unto the nations. Do you remember that was the promise of Abraham? That he would become a blessing to all the families of the earth. And has not Joseph become that? The patriarch here now standing in Egypt in the midst of a Gentile world and all the families of the earth flocking to Egypt because of Joseph being raised up as a savior as it was for the world. Now his sons will carry the legacy of the promise of the faith of the covenant of God into the generations that are to come. What I love about watching this unfold in the text is the well, the up and down and mixed nature of the, of the way in which this, this unfolds. As you look at the page, you think to yourself, there's a lot of moving parts here. But what has Jacob been thinking about the whole time? Not the worldly success that would have been promised to Ephraim and Manasseh in Egypt. Think about that for a minute. These are the sons of the second in charge over Egypt the greatest nation of the then known world, the best of Egyptian education, the best that money could buy, living in the richest of palaces. They could have ridden their father's coattails to fortune and fame in Egypt for the rest of their lives. Do you see what those happening in this passage? You see, this is not just extending the seed in one direction. This is cutting us off from the world at the same time. 
He is adopting. These sons are legally becoming Jacob's and not Joseph's. Which meant the legacy of Joseph in Egypt that would have been at their disposal to become great in that pagan and foreign nation is now being shut down in order for them to step towards the fulfillment of the promises of God to become the people of God in the land of Canaan. That's the focus of the text, right? He even ends the end of this text going, hey, I saved a mountain slope for you in Canaan when you get there. Now, I just want you to envision this for a second. Um, Joseph kind of has it made. And his father's appealing to him like a little slope in Canaan I've left for you. In a very similar level, you go, these sons are being adopted by Jacob. And now they've got the inheritance of Canaan that's an utter famine to land where no one can even survive presently. And all of the resources of Egypt and their identity in Egypt is being cut off. You would think to yourself, this is worldly sabotage. Like we're destroying our lives, not making our lives. Well, what you see is what you get. What do you see? What do you see? When you look at your legacy and you think about its future, do you think about the nest egg? Do you, do you focus on the worldly things? Or are you considering eternal realities? When you, when you step back and say, I want to extend a blessing to my children, do you say, oh Lord, I want more than anything for them to know you and to serve you. And if that means that they are in utter poverty, so be it for their righteousness and their use in your kingdom. Uh, Lord, I so want them to be used as a mighty instrument in your hand. If that means they don't get into the college that I want them to get into, then so be it for your purposes. Uh, Lord, I so want my children to be extending as a blessing to the nations that if I don't get to see them the rest of my life and they serve on a foreign mission field to translate the scriptures into an unknown tongue and I'd celebrate no Thanksgivings or Christmases with them, so be it. You see how different that is? See how different that is? What do you see? <laughs> what do you see? At home is the frustration and the focus more about a report card than sin? Is the focus more about a piano recital than helping one's neighbor? Is the focus about a sport exploit? Or, or is it about growing in the grace and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see the difference there? What you see is what you get. Joseph here is, is willingly sacrificing the privileges of Egypt in order to set before his sons the legacy of the covenant promises given by God from Abraham, Isaac, and extended now through Jacob. That to him is more beautiful than anything in the world. Now this is why at the end of this text, when this sight of faith is given, and now this, this picture of seeds as the focus 
of the priority of the text, you see at the end there's a surprise. And it's, you know, it's the surprise blessing. <laughs> surprise even for Joseph. Did you notice that? As the text very carefully says that Joseph brings with his, you know, his, his, his children to the right hand and to the left hand of, of Jacob for the blessing. He brings Manasseh to get the right hand because he's the firstborn. And he brings Ephraim to the left hand because he's the secondborn. And, and he, he extends to the hands to exactly where they should be. And what does Jacob do? He goes, eh. that's what he does. It says he crosses his hands as he extends the blessing. And, and part of me, as I initially read that, I just pondered it. You know, before I'd done much study and gone back and reflected on it, I thought, that trickster, this is old Jacob showing up. This is old Jacob. His name means deceiver. Here he is in the midst of it. As he said, now let me be sure. Like, this is Manasseh, yeah, and this is Ephraim. Okay, great. Like, this is, this is Jacob. This is the Jacob we've always known. This is the one who set those same hands forward for his father Isaac to feel. And his father Isaac would say, it's Jacob's voice, but it's Esau's hands. And I feel, same hands are now tricking, as it were, Joseph, who sees it, and it's almost like the cat's got his tongue. Like, he sees it, and he's disturbed, but Jacob is now into the blessing, and he's like looking at, well, no, no, Father, Father, no, 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 the, the hands are in the wrong place. And he goes, no, they're not. No, they're not. I know, son, I know. What's going on here? Well, here, here is... Here's Joseph bringing his sons, cutting off Egyptian privileges, walking now in the promises of, of the covenant as he comes before Jacob. He says, son, listen, we don't just cut ourselves off from the things of the world to focus on the things of God. We also recognize that we cut ourselves off from the ways of the world. And that God's ways are different than man's ways. Everywhere from the Nile to the Euphrates, the firstborn son culturally would get the blessing and it was the historical norm. He was the strong one. He was the privileged one. He was the one who would lead the family into the future. And yet what is, have we seen since the, almost the beginning of the book of Genesis that God is constantly choosing who? The lesser. The younger, the weaker, constantly choosing those who are not to make them those who are. That's what he does. That's what he does. It's not as if Manasseh or Ephraim in and of themselves is one better than the other. That's not the point. The point is God extends blessing to whom he will extend blessing. And the ones in whom he extends blessing to are those who know that they need it. The weak, the needy, the lesser. Paul makes it very clear, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are rich. 
God is pleased to use the foolishness of the world to show his wisdom. God is pleased to show the weakness of the world, to show his strength. At the end of the day, the blessing of God is a matter of his sovereignty and not a matter of our choice. His sovereignty. He is the one who gives and blesses. Oh man, don't we know this? Don't we know that we're not in control of the souls we're called to care for? Whether they're our employees or our, or our, our Sunday school class of, of little children that we're teaching this morning. Or whether it's our own children or our grandkids. Or aren't we fully aware that we're not in control? We are utterly dependent upon God choosing to bless us. And it's as if Jacob, who had learned that lesson now over the years of a lot of ups and downs, is extending that lesson and that witness to the next generation and saying, listen, I know how it's done here in Egypt. It's done that way in Canaan too. But it's God who chooses. And he chooses the needy, the weak, the lesser, those who are not. And he makes them those who are. Chelsea Harmon, talking about this particular passage, says Joseph assumed that his dad couldn't see and so tried to move his hands. But Jacob could actually see better than anyone else because he saw what God sees. Walking by faith and not by sight always brings surprises, friends. Always brings surprises. God's ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are different than our thoughts. They're higher. They're better. They're better. You know, as I looked at this text and considered the flow of Jacob's life, I was surprised at how, well, how it reminded me of someone else's path. If you look over the 25 chapters of Jacob's life, you see him starting in Canaan, having to leave Canaan out of a threat for death. You see him coming back to Canaan where his wife Rachel dies. And now you see him out of Canaan in Egypt where he's going to die. But what has he begged them to do? Bring him back to Canaan after he dies and bury his bones in the promised land. That's been his journey. That's his, that's his journey. He's in the land of Canaan and he's out. He's in the land of Canaan and he's out. And then ultimately he's in. And very similarly, the Lord Jesus Christ from all eternity had been, as it were, in the promised land, dwelling in glory with his Father. And he left that land to experience the threat and reality of death on your and my behalf. And he's gone back to that land. And he's gone back to that land for what reason? To prepare a place for us. But what's he going to do? He's going to come back to this land. And he's going he's to take us with him where? Ultimately, as it were, not to bury our bones in the promised land, but to pick up our bones in the promised land. And to give us a new body and a new soul glorified in his presence that we would live for all eternity in a place better than Eden, better than Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. 
The flow and the pattern of Jacob's life mirrors at almost every turn the flow and the pattern of Jesus's own journey and existence. And it teaches us this, that the focus of this passage is on two things, seeds and land. And the focus of this passage ends with the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and him in the land with his people in the new heavens and new earth, you and me if you're in him. Friends, this gives us hope. In the midst of a world that's often falling apart in our lives that are reeling and careening out of control, this gives us hope. That you don't have to conclude and put the bow on the story of your life right now in the midst of the story. Especially those of you in here who may have broken hearts over how your life has turned out, how your legacy looks, and what the generation of kids and grandkids may or may not be doing at this particular moment. Just know this. This story you're still in the middle of. This story you're still in the middle of. Jacob is old. And there's going to be a lot of ups and downs from this point on in the text of Scripture. Let's wait till the end to decide whether it's a happy ending. Because the one who holds the pen is still writing. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would teach us that truth. That we would be a people who would walk by faith and not by sight. And who with joy would trust you to finish the story as you promised. And that when we get there, we will know that there was no other way to end it but the way that you ended it. And it was the best ending ever. And it was just the beginning. Father, I do pray that you right now would guide us and give us the encouragement and the hope of faith to plod through the experience and the ups and downs of this life, to live not by sight but by faith, looking to the seed and to the land of where we will be fruitful and multiply, even the new heavens and the new earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.